Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, guys. My name is Noah Tetzner, and I host a podcast called The History of Vikings. It has been nearly 1,000 years since the last Vikings built settlements and carried out raids on the Christian kingdoms of Europe, and still they continue to fascinate us. From hit TV shows to comic book characters and superheroes, the Vikings and their gods are still very much a part of our world. Yes, the legendary stories, vibrant myths, and rich history of the Vikings can still be seen today. Join me in rediscovering the lost stories of history's most legendary people on my podcast, The History of Vikings. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would be delighted if you check out my podcast, The History of Vikings. Greetings, comrades. The Eastern Border here. We are returning to history with this episode because, you know, Stalin actually needs to get into the interesting stuff after, you know, he'll come out on top from the struggles of the triumvirate. But we'll get into that. First off, I'd like to mention the show whose plug you just heard at the beginning. Noah reached out to me and I gave his podcast a listen and hey, I highly recommend that you do as well. Vikings are awesome, and he does a great job of making them even more so. I will, I guess I'll have to take out my Coronian tribal stuff one day, and get him over here, or go to his show, to talk about my own ancestors who had a nice, you know, raid and trade on-off relationship with their Scandinavian colleagues, so give him a listen. But now, now on to the show. See, last time when we spoke, uh, that was all about Stalin dying, him becoming too rude and everything... But at this point, we'll get into a bit more analysis on how Stalin has now taken over, basically. We, I want to start this by, uh, by kind of talking how um, my sources uh, of the socialist press in Russia, you know, the red, uh, the red biography that I'm using, see, those guys went out of their way to explain that the letter to Congress, you know, the one where Lenin condemned Stalin and, you know, posts his strong opinions about him, how it was, you know, not that serious and shouldn't be taken seriously. Yeah, we started we started our last Stalin episode by a reading of this letter to Congress, <laughs> but this time this time I want to start with how basically uh, they went through point by point and refusing everything because apparently someone in Khrushchev's era, as is written in their version of the biography, someone in Khrushchev's era had counted that uh, Lenin had called Trotsky 
an idiot, a traitor, and a scum in total 209 times in his letters. Meanwhile, he just called Stalin rude, and, like, that was uh, way less than, than he offended Trotsky. And all sorts of such, like, minutia facts. And in the end, they just go through all the speech and come to the conclusion that uh, this letter to Congress was basically just a morally ethical attack on Stalin, which was originally meant to kind of educate him so that he'd be better a better leader, because when he speaks about grabbing a new leader, in the end, he actually, you know, he, he says not Stalin, but he totally means Stalin because of all the, all the hidden facts and, and, and tiny, tiny details. So yeah, there's a, there's a view like that going on as well here, because, oh boy, when I'm using those guys as a source... I always have to remember how crazily biased they actually are. But yeah, yeah, with this with this letter to Congress. As you heard in the last episode, by the end of 1922, well, it, it had become pretty obvious to the whole Politburo that, you know, Lenin's done. And at this point, the chief concern of everyone there in the Politburo was, was power and how to stay in power. Because by this point already we will see the nice pyramid, pyramid structure of the Soviet Union emerging already. There is the Politburo on top. Below them, just below them, is the Central Committee of the Party. Then the local party administration. Then the party, you know, the everyday rank and file of the party. And below them, well, below them there was everyone else. <laughs> literally everyone else in the country. Who, well, literally were without any rights or privileges. And as Mr. Montefiore put it, living in outer darkness. So yeah. <laughs> the Politburo was now quite anxious to prevent kind of erosion of its power by the Central Committee, which adopted the same viewpoint towards the rank and file, which in turn adopted the very same attitude towards everyone else. And, you know, this, this whole thing kind of uh, derives from, <laughs> from how, how Bolsheviks even seized their power. This was how their their sudden you know how they suddenly overcame the Essers and the Mensheviks and everything and uh, yeah this this made for a, some sort of a I guess readiness to close ranks, especially the Politburo, most uh, who basically wanted to wanted to defend their authority and improve their situation, and of whom a lot really were completely crazy and anxious to oust Trotsky away from any sort of leadership. So yeah. All of these factors kind of combined to create a majority in favor of a collective leadership, which emerged in early 1923 as a triumvirate. You know, just like in the Roman Empire times. This triumvirate was led by Zinoviev, whose original name was Radomilsky, by the way. And my socialist sources basically state that, quote, he was a man of great vanity, capable of remarkable meanness of spirit. He had a magnificent head on a less than a magnificent body, with a shrill, scratchy voice that made his listeners think of eunuchs. Not afraid, not afraid of enjoying the benefits of power, he had kept on the late Tsar's chef, and at a time when much of the population was starving, this helped confirm him in his belief that he was irresistible to women. He was, however, an outstanding orator, though his speeches had more power than content. And the following quote about him comes from Soviet historian Antonov Ousyenov. Well, Soviet in the sense that he studies Soviet history, and I found his quote. Quote, Someday he may look back on his whole life as one continuous sacrifice to his eloquence and his own belief in its powers. It is, in truth, a kind of narcotic that induces pleasant dreams. His speeches begin with a dry, not very elegant introductions, then they are underway. 
His audiences are weaned from their thoughts, their memories, the world they see about them, the wisdom of their experience to follow the fluid of this eloquence, which is not, curiously enough, sustained by a very pleasing voice. Otherwise, sane and sound people have confessed to me that they are completely at the mercy of Zinoviev's temperament, and recover their wits only when he has vanished from the platform. In Zinoviev, everything turns into excitement and passion. He is just temperament, with strong instincts of hate. He seems to be nothing apart from this temperament and the motives that determine it. There is something sinister and something peevish about him. His face, keen and intelligent in profile, looks like a sponge from the front. End quote. And at this point, his colleagues felt that he really talked too much. You know, just like I do in my podcast. And, uh, and they nicknamed him Vodolier. You know, the one who sprouts out water, powers water out. Uh, it's like powering water is, is when you speak too much without, without any real content. And uh, he was a Bolshevik of the older generation. He really had little understanding about the realities of politics at this era after, after the civil war is over and when Stalin has like, is like failing. And uh, he, was allow- he was really allowing himself to be kind of dazzled by words and compliments. He, uh, he was, he's said to have, quote, moved in a world of verbal constructions leading a bloodless paper existence. And another critique that, you know, his contemporaries afford him is, quote, lustful as a tomcat and timid as a hare. So, this is Zinoviev. Then there was Kamenev, born Rosenfeld. He was a bit less flamboyant. His name is usually linked with that of Zinoviev, who sort of overshadowed him. But uh, Kamenev stands on his own in my mind, I think. He was born in 1883, uh, you know, uh, after he got a tiny bit of higher education, he became a full-time professional revolutionary, as, you know, all these guys are. He also had been a close associate of Lenin, and over the years, he adopted the somewhat conciliatory approach to major issues. He was sort of um, the voice of reason in the triumvirate. If Zinoviev declined to support the Bolshevik seizure of power because he was afraid, Kamenev's refusal stemmed from a dislike of radical measures. Nevertheless, Lenin never lost respect for his abilities because Kamenev was known to be intelligent, sensible, and, you know, a somewhat decent man, well, at least in comparison to the company that he has found himself in. And he was also the one who was basically responsible for, you know, arranging meetings because apparently under his leadership all the meetings and and committee organizational stuff happened quickly and efficiently and without anyone like feeling that, that they had been built bullied or or the, and everyone felt that their opinions had been listened to he owed his position in the tramver to his past and to the fact that he had you know taken charge of the moscow party machine and you know uh, and alex de jong for once states that quote he would have made an excellent socialist politician in a western democracy but by no stretch of the imagination was he a match for stalin end quote so yeah, at this point, at this point, Stalin was the was kind of this Tremvarets junior member, running the administration apparatus and you know slowly creeping in into into power. His name was always mentioned last in all documents, although Kamenev in particular, for obviously being a moderate, was not or was not like very fond of him. Stalin at this point was considered a useful organization man and a party workhorse. Furthermore, a coalition that excluded the effective head of the departments of party organization and personnel. Would have been unworkable. Because like I said, Stalin at this point is doing the black work in the administration, while Zinoviev goes out of, goes out and makes crazy speeches, and Kamenev, well, just, you know, leads meetings, some sort of, of revolutionaries. 
At the end of 1922, as you might remember from last episode, Stalin was seen as a little-known figure, but an able one, a plausible outsider in the succession race. The correspondent of the New York Times ended his review of these, you know, three guys as, as contenders, and adding, out, of course, Trotsky in as well, with, with an interesting quote. <clears throat> there is also the Georgian Stalin, one of the most remarkable men in Russia, and perhaps the most influential here today. During the last year, he was shown judgment and analytical power not unworthy of Lenin. But still, that is Stalin, and he will go out on, of his way to make some quite nasty mistakes. And uh, if you've listened to the Lenin episodes, this is where their conflict starts to burn really seriously. See, Stalin had a brush with um, Lenin's wife, Nadezhda Krupskaya, late in December 1922. The Central Committee had appointed Stalin to uh, <clears throat> oversee Lenin and ensure that he was following doctor's orders and, you know, keeping the political activity at a minimum. And some of these guys let it, um, let it slip, so to speak. There were some, some cases where certain doctors had to be moved away because of uh, not following the party line clear enough, so to speak, in this case. Essentially, on December 22nd, Stalin learned that Lenin had given Krupskaya a short piece of dictation. He telephoned her, and as she put it in a letter of uh, kind of complaint to Kamenev, he, quote, subjected her to unseemly abuse and menaces, threatening to have her prosecuted for insubordination. He allegedly uh, went there in this conversation as far as to call her a syphilitic old whore. Now, even though, you know, uh, a kind of a phone call could have told Stalin that Krupskaya had the doctor's permission to take this dictation, but not like Stalin will take any orders from, from anything, really. Now, obviously, there are other other uh, statements about this whole conversation that it wasn't as bad and didn't, didn't kind of rule out this stuff, because there will be some explanation uh, happening all later with this, where Stalin just stated that I was rude to her because she disobeyed the orders and not because she was the wife of Lenin. And, you know, he said that he would treat his wife the same way and wouldn't get mad. Then again, you know, uh, personal insults, I suppose, are not not the case here, even if, uh, even if you treat her harshly just because she's a party member. But I think that um, it was the letter itself that had enraged Stalin. See, discovering that the Central Committee had altered its position on the foreign trade monopoly in his favor and that Stalin had withdrawn all objections... Lenin dictated a note to Trotsky congratulating him on getting their policy through. Quote, it seems that we have captured the position by maneuvering without firing a shot. I propose that far from stopping now, we press home the attack. And yeah, this suggestion of a sort of an alliance between Lenin and Trotsky would basically make Stalin mad already since it would, would put them in a position where he couldn't do anything about them and would leave Stalin himself, you know crazily exposed to this whole Georgian affair thing, the war that we spoke about last time. But yeah, we, we don't know when Krupskaya told Lenin about this conversation she had with Stalin, but she did spoke with him, obviously. It may or may not have been this incident which basically prompted Lenin to add this, this, concern, this whole thing concerning Stalin's rudeness, but his only direct response to it comes, comes quite later. Because, yeah, these, these three months or, or about that uh, separate Lenin's second stroke from his third were kind of an unreal period of time. The restrictions that were imposed upon him allegedly for his own good, and, you know, Stalin visits Lenin 
often, and this uh, to make sure that, that all this all this happens. Uh, this whole this whole made him a virtual prisoner, and um, Stalin was the one personally responsible for for these restrictions. Lenin seemed to grasp that extent only gradually and did his best to resist them. He did not go away without a fight, and a party congress was to be held in April, and it seems that it was there that he planned to make his next move. And this probably would have taken the form of a reading of his will personally, and, you know, this, this addendum condemning the proposal that Stalin be dismissed from, from his posts. But in the meantime, he prepared more material for the congress, at which he hoped to steer the party into a new course. Lenin wanted to know the results of a recent census of government officials in large cities. But Lenin's secretary informed him that Stalin had forbidden him to see these papers. And uh, his new doctor, appointed by Stalin, accused him of requesting more political information. And Lenin now voiced the suspicion that he was under political, as opposed to medical control, which was obviously the case here. He was also concerned by problems of, of you know, the party structure itself. He didn't exactly like this whole structure of pyramid that were building that was building up there. His essays on the subject constituted basically a sort of an attack on Stalin. Uh, since they came to focus on the shortcomings of uh, Rabrikin, which Stalin had administered before. Lenin expressed the hope that the right kind of inspectorate staffed with <clears throat> good people trained in Germany and England might, might cure some bureaucratic abuse. Moreover, and, and there he strikes directly at Stalin, Lenin hoped that um, this new inspectorate would, quote, abandon the qualities of ludicrous effect affectation and self-importance which had basically, uh, you know, been the modus operandi of, of both party and state organizations at this time. Stalin obviously was not pleased. You know, in his own circles, he tried to oppose their publication of, of Pravda. He went so far as to suggest just, you know, printing a single dummy copy of Pravda and give it to Lenin, but Trotsky and Kamenev, obviously, you know, understanding where the wind was blowing, uh, enforced, uh, enforced and insisted upon their publications, so, these pieces appeared in early March. In the meantime, Lenin returned to Georgian question. The complaints about, uh, you know, the Georgian Central Committee, after all this war affair, had been, dis been discussed again in the Politburo, which, once again, due to Stalin's men inside of all this thing, kind of exonerated Stalin and Orjakonidze. Lenin asked, then, to be shown the papers... And his secretary passed the request to Stalin, obviously, because, hey, Stalin's the responsible guy. And at first, at first, Stalin kind of stalled this whole thing. He replied that the matter was trivial and, you know, would go, would go anyway, would go away anyways, and, and, yeah, it would require the authorization of the Politburo, so, yeah, yeah, just, just drop it. But it all came down to a discussion between Stalin and Kamenev, who observed that, you know, Lenin sort of should see, see the papers, and Stalin, recognizing that, you know, he had basically lost around, answered... That Lenin could do it he, as he wanted, because uh, Stalin is playing the long game, as we've noticed previously. When Lenin read them, his understanding of the whole bullying style and, you know, the rudeness and roughness of Stalin's methods developed one step for further. One of his notes relating to, quote, <clears throat> the affair of biomechanics, or, um, <clears throat> or Jokonidze's blow to the face, reads, quote, did, did Stalin know? Why, did, why didn't he do anything about it? And yes, this is where Lenin... Again, turns to Trotsky. He writes a letter to be read to him over the telephone, in which he asks Trotsky to defend the Georgians against Stalin, and Arjokonidze, signing himself with, a war, with, with kind of this, this weird statement, 
with the very best comradely greetings, which is a form of expression not often seen in the Soviet Union. But yeah, if Trotsky wasn't prepared to defend the Georgians, because, you know, after all that happened in the war and how they're running the whole things, would he then, <clears throat> quote, please return the material that Lenin was sending him in his December note on national questions. Lenin also wrote to the Georgians themselves with copies to Kamenev and Trotsky, informing them that he now supposed their that he now supported their cause, and he didn't like how Stalin and Narodzikanidze were running Georgia. But Trotsky, for you know all his rooting for someone who seems to seems to be the good guy here, and but remember we're talking about terrorists who are extremely violent and who will shoot you for not supporting the regime. And again, Trotsky wants the world to bur burn down, Stalin just focuses on purely the power. But yeah, Trotsky manages to be a terrible politician at this point, because he uh, hits himself in the head with a hammer. First off, he asked Lenin's permission to show the material that he was about to spread around about the Georgian affair to Kamenev. Lenin replied that this was out of the question, since Kamenev would immediately tell Stalin, who would, quote, <clears throat> do a rotten deal and deceive us. Lenin's secretary then told Trotsky that, in her master's view, Stalin was no longer to be trusted, and that Lenin was preparing a, quote, bomb against him. Uh, this claim, although it has been disputed a lot of times, which is why previous Stalin episodes started with this whole reading, because this is the bomb that we're, t we're talking about. But we do not know if the document that we now know uh, was the full version of what Lenin wrote, but still... Uh, Lenin told him that, um, that that he would prepare for himself in this April Congress. And Trotsky returned Lenin's letter, but he kept a copy for himself. In other words, Trotsky by this point refuses to help Georgians, but doesn't mention the letter to anybody. And he later makes some feeble criticisms of, of Jokonidze, but he didn't even say anything about Stalin or about, you know, Lenin's letter before this time. Matters could have ended here had, you know, Lenin's secretary had not secretly written to Kamenev, uh, to the triumvirate, exposing the whole affair. Weirdly enough, Trotsky had ignored Lenin's wishes on one hand and failed to inform his colleagues of a crucial letter on the other, which basically let both sides down and, you know, him being left on the fence. Once more, the architect of the formula, quote, neither peace nor war, but total revolution, was again completely out of touch with political realpolitik realities of the time. On the same day, 5th of March, that Lenin wrote to Trotsky, asking him for his support, he also wrote to Stalin. And uh, this is a short letter, so I'll quote it in full. Dear Comrade Stalin, you had the rudeness to call my wife on the telephone and insult her. While being prepared to forget what you said, she repeated your words to Zinoviev and Kamenev. I do not intend to forget what you, d what you do against me so easily, and of course, anything done to my wife is done against me too. I must therefore ask if you are prepared to withdraw your words and apologize, or whether you would prefer that all relations between us should cease henceforth. Yeah, and this is this is the letter to which, like, Kamenev and Zinoviev call Stalin, and they want to solve this whole issue about this uh, phone conversation. And th to this, uh, Stalin responds that, oh, no, 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 it's not like this, comrades. I just, you know, berated her for not following the party line strictly. Nonetheless, the fact that Lenin himself remains a, a staunch kind of critique of Stalin at this point, that he um, writes a letter like this, which would have been, like, impossible just three years before, this kind of shows us something. But Lenin is trying to pull up his political games 
on a losing battlefield because you know for one Lenin did not send a letter at once, and it was about you know since he, he seemed, since he might know about the incident for about like more than two months. At this point, I think that Lenin acted kind of in kind of in cold blood, hoping to elect an apology to be used against Stalin at the Congress in April. That is how, by the way, Krupskaya interpreted the letter when, when Lenin showed it to her, and, and uh, Krupskaya told Kamenev that, quote, he would have never have decided to break off personal relations if he had not thought it necessary to crush Stalin politically. And yeah, she recognized that Lenin would, you know, obviously always put politics before his wife's honor. Despite Krupskaya's objections, the letter was delivered on the 7th of March, and Stalin dictated an answer on the spot. The letter is as following, quote, to Comrade Lenin, from Stalin, only personally. Comrade Lenin, about five weeks ago, I had a conversation with Nadezhda Konstantinovna, that's Krupskaya's patrimonial, which I consider not only your wife, but also an old party comrade of mine, and told her, by the phone, approximately the following. The doctors have forbidden to give political information to Ilyich, reasoning that this regime is of utmost importance in the process of curing him. But ignoring that, you, Nadezhda Konstantinovna, refuse, break this regime. You can't play with the life of Ilyich, and so on. I do not think that in these words you could see anything rude or impolite. Any actions that I have taken against you, because I haven't aimed for any other goals, except the one that promotes your well-being and quick recovery. Moreover, I consider it to be my duty to watch over how your daily regime is being observed. My discussion with N. Konstantinovna also confirmed that there was nothing in this discussion except some empty misunderstandings and that there couldn't have even been anything besides that. In short, if you consider that uh, for the preservation of some relationships I must take back my words, that I can of course do. But, for one, I refuse to understand what's the deal with this affair, and where's my fault in this, and what essentially is demanded from me. Yosef Stalin This letter was published for the public in the Izvestia, the magazine of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, in number 12 in 1989. And this letter itself has an interesting backstory. For one, when Alex de Jong wrote his book that I'm um, often using in, in, in this, these episodes, he writes here, quote, because this book is published in 1986, three years before the public got access to the letter, so, quote, We have no record of his reply, but we can only assume it to have been an apology. Lenin's letter made a surprisingly profound impression upon Stalin, whom one might have expected to have shrugged it off with a sneer about an old whore and an invalid. Its existence remained a secret for more than 30 years until Khrushchev and Stalin's successors stumbled upon it in a secret compartment in Stalin's desk. Khrushchev first made its contents known to the party in his secret speech of 1956. It's pointless to wonder why Stalin kept it. Although it may have been out of veneration for Lenin, it might equally well have been a source of amusement. It's not hard to imagine Stalin rereading it occasionally and smiling himself as the man who had the last laugh. But yeah. Again, uh, they, they, these, these, this previous quote was written in 1986 when we didn't know the contents. And I don't know, it's kind of strange to imagine that um, our friend De Jong here sort of presumes to have some sort of apology going on with Stalin. Well, heck, or even some respect for Krupskaya, maybe he kind of laughed or something, but as we, as we just heard, this letter was not an apology. This letter was something interesting. It's kind of, kind of strange how this letter still remained normal, because, you know, it got published only 33 years after the death of Stalin. 
And the reasoning why, might, why, why he might have kept it in his, his desk in the secret compartment is that, well, maybe he didn't want it to be read at all. But I do have to give you the second opinion, which comes from my socialist sources site, which is more modern than, than uh, other books that I'm reading. But um, this comes from the memories of one M. Volodicheva, which was Stalin's secretary at the time. Giving the letter from Lenin to Stalin, from hand to hand, I ask Stalin to write a reply to Vladimir Ilyich as he's waiting for an answer and he's worrying. Stalin read the letter standing and right there in front of me. His face remained calm. He thought a bit and slowly, carefully speaking each word, um, gave a response, making long pauses between, between the words. Quote, This isn't Lenin saying this. This is his illness. I'm not a medic. I'm a politician. I am Stalin. If my wife, member of the party, would act wrongly and she would be punished, I wouldn't consider it to be in my rights to get into this mess. Krupskaya is a member of the party. But if Vladimir Ilyich insists, then I am ready to apologize to Krupskaya for my rudeness. Yeah, these, this, this comes from the memories, but again, this is from the biased socialist source, modern-day Communist Party at Russia source, which essentially wants to portray Stalin as this more humble guy, instead of how the Jong and Montefiore often portray him as this sneering villain. But yeah, it is, it is interesting, because even throughout all the things that Stalin did, I don't, I don't really believe that he could have ever sneered about anything, really. But... Yeah, he was quite rude, but for one, Krupskaya, of all the people, did. You know, he did permit her to live at the end, until the end of her, like, natural life in a Kremlin apartment. But again, that is, that is all that he allowed her. As, as we'll see in the future, uh, at the height of the terror, when she again attempted to criticize Stalin's actions, he gave her just, just a magnificent threat to kind of uh, put her back into her place. Quote, If you don't shut up, will make someone else Lenin's widow. Together with, um, with his expression of, of kind of this support for Georgians and, and how they're being treated in the USSR, this letter to Stalin was the last thing Lenin wrote. On March 9th, a third stroke paralyzed his right side, deprived him of, of like capabilities of, of speech, and completely removed him from the political scene. A few days later, a newspaper suggested that he had been politically inactive for some time, and stated that he, he has been accepting doctor's orders unconditionally. To anyone reading and understanding in the Soviet sense, obviously, this meant that Stalin was completely, completely under... Well, that Lenin was completely under Politburo's control and under control of Stalin himself. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
And here comes Entrotsky once again. His writings are cool, but sometimes crazy because he often writes weird, unconfirmable de details and, you know, often contradicts himself and whatever, so we take it with a grain of salt. He wrote that, according to Stalin, Lenin has had requested poison once. Trotsky implies in his writings that Stalin probably, you know, wanted to do the old comrade us a nice favor. Well, certainly what we know here is that Stalin was in a clear position to commit, you know, some medical murder since he was control in control of Lenin's doctors and appointed them himself. The technique itself kind of, you know, appealed to him too, by the way. He made, you know, a lot of use of it in later years, and it also featured in the scenario of his final purge, the so-called Doctor's Plot, which is going to have its own episode. We shall see We shall see him accusing literally everyone else about murdering Lenin during uh, the Moscow trials of the late 1930s, because, hey, what, what false charge could we put up on someone and then execute him? Hey, you killed Lenin. That's just amazing. Because, uh, you know, Stalin was... I was the kind of guy who really also enjoyed, you know, doing something crazy and evil and then pinning it on others. Now, obviously, I cannot claim here that Stalin directly murdered Lenin. Uh, every, everything, every source uh, is, like, even even the most anti-Soviet sources coming, coming from the 70s and 60s, they claim that Stalin did it, but there is no concrete proof. And obviously, modern-day communists who are worshipping Stalin, they will also never never mention this. So, all the evidence is circumstantial, but, well, he obviously had a method and everything else. He's like, if he had wanted to kill him, then he probably would have killed him, I think. And, you know, in, in future years, obviously, it becomes completely safe to assume that anyone who crossed Stalin and died suddenly, you know, didn't die a natural death. And, you know, it, again, I think that it would kind of give this weird pleasure to Stalin that uh, to, make, to, to basically create a monumental cult, which we spoke about in a long, long detail about the episode of Lenin's death, to celebrate the man whom he had murdered. I, I believe that Stalin might have had a hand in this. But again... Again, and uh, my three years of podcasting have taught me that I shouldn't shouldn't claim and make Stalin more evil than he already is, and they shouldn't make like fake claims or something. So let's leave that for for when the archives are finally opened someday, I hope. But yeah, at any point, this coincidence—if it was a coincidence—that removed Lenin from from active politics and and then then just killed him. Yeah, this this might as well be just just Stalin's alibi or something, because it is a one huge coincidence if he wasn't murdered. And then there was the Congress in April. This would be the first one to be without Lenin, because he was completely incapacitated, and the confusion that was there was you know tangible in the air. As historian Ulam puts it, quote. <clears throat> The confusion created by his absence is reflected in the greetings that factories and youth organizations transmit transmitted to their leaders on such occasions, since it was by no means clear who their leaders were. Some of them hailed Lenin and Zinoviev, some coupled Trotsky with the sick man in their greetings. The more prudent saluted Lenin, Zinoviev, Kamenev, and Trotsky, or still, more wisely, omitted any name but Lenin's. But at this point, no one really uh, even thought about paying some sort of special tribute 
you know, at this point, very modest, very, you know, very quiet man sitting in the corner, being just, you know, just a secretary, just the general secretary of the party. Not Nothing more, nothing less. And here, about the responses of, of, of how Stalin acted in this Congress, we have two completely contradicting statements here. You figure out which is closer one to reality, because I'm going to read them both. This one comes from Alex de Jong's book. <clears throat> Quote, Stalin displayed remarkable political sense of the Congress, exercising finesse and exceptional adroitness in what remained a tight spot. Lenin or no, no Lenin, he was still at risk. Many delegates had a clear idea of the trust of Lenin's memorandum, and there were also those who knew about the testament, its codicil, and the letter to Stalin. Stalin countered with a whispering campaign. He began to undermine the authority of the document as his agents spread the word that the postscript to Lenin's testament was written immediately after the incident involving Krupskaya, implying that Lenin had been driven by rage. This is sort of the Western view of the whole affair. But, again, I want to give you some of my Russian sources here. Because, where is the reality in all of this situation? It's kind of hard to compare. Of all this research that I have um, accumulated over the time, if there ever was a reality bender, then that man was definitely Stalin. So, so this is where, <clears throat> well, the, where the Baldkin Rus site, which I use, which is very pro-Stalinist, this is what they have to say about this. <clears throat> From the 17th to 25th of April, 12th uh, Congress of Russian Communist Bolshevik Party. The last Congress, uh, which happened during the lifetime of Lenin, where he couldn't participate physically. Yosef Stalin offers Trotsky to come up with the political report, but that re but he refuses, stating that while Lenin is alive, no one has the rights to, to shift him over from this role. Trotsky offers completely, completely leave the political report, that is, how the party is moving on politically, outside of this Congress. However, Zinoviev, who has just returned from, from his vacation, insists that <clears throat> this report would be would be given to be would be given exactly and just to him. Josef Stalin uh, comes up and speaks about the organizational report of the of the Central Committee of the Bolshevik Party, and and this is important because we're sti we're still stuck into this whole Georgian affair. That's my comment to this <clears throat> about the national about the national uh, national questions and various issues in the building of party and a new society. Together, and, and this this comes uh, up, up as a straight interesting quote which kind of contradicts the Jung and Montefiore and other Stalin researchers, quote, hmm. uh, Together with uh, the large Russian chauvinism, Stalin very harshly, uh, very harshly judges the local chauvinism as well, which is being made, according to Stalin, as a reaction to the all-Russian large chauvinism. Uh, together with the NEP, not only our economy is growing in days, but in the hours. And uh, together with that, our uh, imperial chauvinism is growing as well. Trying to destroy all non-Russian things. Uh, trying, trying to find all ways of ruling around the Russian beginning. And is trying to betray the non-Russians. At the same time, Stalin accuses the Georgian opposition in the fact that... Uh, they are opposing to create some sort of uh, federational laws which would formally, you know, tie them even closer to the main Russian territory. And this is where we see the kind of the beginnings of this Caucasus autonomy that we have even today. 
Stalin states that they're hiding against their Georgian nationalism uh, to basically get some profit out of this status of privilege that they are living in now. Quote, Some comrades who are working in a certain land of the Soviet territory, which is called Georgia, there in the upper echelons, well, obviously, uh, something is wrong there with their heads. And then the whole kind of Congress elects Stalin a member of the Central Committee of the party. Very short, not much descriptions there, but still, you know, Stalin sort of uh, addresses the Georgian question, but seeing that he opposed Lenin and was one of the kind of undocumented imperialistic chauvinists that the world has ever seen, yeah, these are the other ends of uh, various biases as we can, we can clearly see here. But we have more to say about the Stalin's speech. It's interesting for one further reason. And uh, in his speech he also mentioned Lenin. And this is the first time ever that Stalin used the term Leninism in sort of a positive sense. It had been coined and used kind of previously by Menshevik Martov in 1904. But now, when coming from Stalin, it basically anticipated Lenin's death and the fact that this whole cult would form around him. Stalin summed up the mood of the Congress with a kind of interesting, weird hypocrisy and kind of a disregard for for the divisions and, and all the weird stuff that, that his speech had, had papered over. Quote, <clears throat> he observes, That I have not for a long time seen a Congress so united, so imbued with one idea. I'm sorry that Comrade Lenin is not here. If he were, he would be able to say, For 25 years, I have been forging a party. And now here it is. Complete, great, and strong. Because, yeah. Even though, even though Stalin is here as a member of this triumvirate, even though Lenin is fading out, there is still Trotsky. Trotsky remains a threat, but he has gotten some sense when he refused to give this uh, total unification speech, this, this prime speech of the political situation. Trotsky at this time was still very popular and, you know, a decent, plausible successor to Lenin, at least in the public eye. As we all know, well, Stalin knew better. Moscow at this period was full of rumors suggest suggesting that Lenin had actually named him his heir kind of, you know, in secret. And that was understandable since at the time when, you know, many considered him the second great leader of the revolution, you know, the, the prime, prime creator of the victory. And at this point, his reputation also got another boost just before this congress by Radek, who published a major piece in Pravda entitled, quote, <clears throat> Lev Trotsky, organizer of victory, which basically made the point that Red Army, Trotsky's creation by this point, and we're having Nep running around, uh, that at this point Trotsky's creation was, uh, quote, the only institution in Soviet Russia that worked. Yeah, and this, this article obviously irritated Voroshilov and all the Zaritsyn group, and, you know, and, and Stalin dismissed it as, quote, idiotic babbling, but still, because of this, Trotsky was able to come to the Congress as a charismatic figure, and Stalin didn't even assault him frontally, as we saw. But Trotsky was, you know, he was a, uh, Stalin understood that Trotsky was a potential kind of Napoleon, I suppose, because his ideas about world revolution by this point is wi wide known. Yet Trotsky 
Trotsky was popular based on what he did in the past, <laughs> even, you know, excluding his extreme failures in Poland. That was his past performance that, he, that won him the Civil War, and although it wasn't kind of clear at the time, this popularity based on past is always crumbling. Trotsky did not understand how to increase his support. He was incapable of, of pressing on. He, quote, <clears throat> behaved like a man who knew his own worth and was short of his place in the party. Unlike the role-playing Stalin, prepared to consort with anyone, his enemies even, for the sake of the ultimate aim, Trotsky was felt to create an invisible barrier in his relations with others. And though the decree of distance could vary, still, it was almost always there. And he remained some sort of a threat, even after the Congress. Because as Stalin got elected in the Politburo, now, not counting Lenin, the Politburo had six full members. Zinoviev, Kamenev, Stalin, Trotsky, Bukharin, and Tomsky. Uh, yeah, by the way, uh, the, la the latter one, the last one, was um, a trade unionist and quite opposed to Trotsky's plans for the workforce. The Triumvirate had announced their intent of voting together at the April, April Congress, and by this point, the only vote Trotsky might hope to collect was that of Bukharin, who was kind of, you know, closer to, closer to him than any other members of the Politburo. Trotsky maintained that Bukharin used to cry on his shoulder, by the way, in his writings, and complained that his colleagues were, quote, turning the party into a sewer. Bukharin had kind of stood up for the Georgian communists, but whether he behaved as Trotsky des des described is, well, obviously not known, since, like I said, trying to get some sense about all this time period from Trotsky's memories is like, I don't know... <laughs> making sure that, you know, uh, blindly trusting whatever a crazy revolutionary is trying to tell you. At any rate, this triumvirate of Kamenev, Stalin, and Zinoviev had taken over, and Trotsky was isolated. This, this point, by the way, is the point where Radek declares that the dictatorship of the proletariat in the country has now been replaced by the dictatorship of the secretariat. For the rest of the year, the Triumvirate and the Politburo in general would spend their time on the political front, that is, bickering with each other, and Stalin, using his position as the General Secretary of the Central Committee, adding more and more of his men to the Politburo. Molotov, Voroshilov, and Kalinin, who are now coming up to take a bigger part in our story, were all Stalin's men. Now, obviously, there were other attempts by Trotsky to assault the new Triumvirate, but they were getting feebler by the day, as he was losing popularity. The final blow, and the most important one, will come in 1924, which will, for shortness reasons, look at to in the next episode, and yeah, I think we will have to dedicate a whole episode just to Trotsky and his own ideas when he'll finally, you know, get purged. But yeah, Boris Bazhanov, interestingly, has given an interesting account of this whole weird situation uh, in 1923, well, he speaks about the end of it, but this whole year just was built by these struggles and um, political ins insider things. First off, I want you guys to understand that uh, all this active politicking that I'm speaking about, which has happened and been through this episode, this argument and all these kind of, you know, not agreeing to each other, all this was reserved for basically a tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of the population, a few hundred thousand party members. Beyond the party, there were no politics anymore. The, the rest of the population lived completely under the arbitrary rule of um, the GPU, the successor of Czech, which will then turn into the KGB. 
which, you know, as you have probably known from my previous episodes, had the power to arrest, torture, and imprison as they saw fit. And yeah, in, in modern, modern times, like, um, there are those who glorify Stalin, especially lately, and when I'm speaking about modern Russian historians, but in Khrushchev's era and in the latter days of the Soviets, there were those who, um, there were those historians who kind of glorified the Soviet Union of the 20s, because then it was seen like this net thing and everything, and um, often the 20s in the Soviet Union, at least in Khrushchev's era, were looked back as the glorious time when everything was okay. But these guys uh, have forgotten the lesson that we have learned probably by listening to other podcasts or my own that, you know, if you, if you look back then there was never a golden age, really. The British consul in Leningrad, who was, you know, who seems an intelligent observer, he, he speaks about how the ordinary life went by for the citizens. Quote, Terror is kept up at a red heat. It is perfectly obvious that the reins of government cannot be held by the present rulers by any other means. Arrests and domiciliary searches continue. The policy of calming out from the population all persons, particularly of the intelligentsia, known or suspected to be of anti-Bolshevik views, is being pursued, pursued with what it is, even for the Bolsheviks, unusual vigor. In many instances, the authorities do not bother to find a pretext for arresting their victims, end quote. Yeah, fun times this nep thing is. And yeah, although, although this new economical policy which we spoke previously had made living conditions bit more tolerable, it had not produced kind of universal economical satisfaction as a stroke, and, and it hadn't been so sharp as uh, Stalin put it in his speech. The biggest problem of the 20s was the inability of the Bolsheviks to kind of achieve the balance between agricultural and the manufacturing prices, the so-called scissors problem. And, you know, although the advantage kind of fluctuated between the, the rural areas and the urban areas over the period, none of these, uh, none of these sides considered the whole the whole of this state of affairs kind of satisfactory. Peasants complained that produce prices were too low. Workers complained that they had poor conditions and oppression at the hands of all this bureaucracy machine that Stalin had now instated that technically governed in their name and on their behalf. Well, you know, nomenclature is there and they're stealing all the benefits. Interestingly enough, the peasant discontent was at this period of time completely outside of the party because they were by this point still considered a potentially hostile class because hey, they can sustain themselves, they do not need the Bolsheviks per se. Their, their first kind of supporting high, high circles will be Khrushchev in the 50s, and yeah, we're gonna go on there. Workers, however, you know, had, some, had some things, they had this trade unionist in the Politburo, and there was some sort of workers' opposition in the party, but despite the seemingly kind of united, united front they put on in the April Congress, the discontent with leadership was widespread among ordinary party members. Yeah, especially these workers who by that by this point considered the party policies kind of wrong and the economy that, you know, they're 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 not doing they're not doing well enough. These guys, these guys, the regular party members, were opposed to this pyramid structure, which was considered which was kind of, you know, now ruling over the whole of Soviet Union. But they still quite much enjoyed their benefits. Kind of another inside struggly thing. But one more important thing that still managed to happen in 1923, amidst all of this, was that that on the 6th of June, the Central Committee approved of what will become the 1924 Constitution of the United of the USSR, which will then later on be made obsolete by the 1936 Constitution, which will then 
be again changed by the 1977 constitution. And yeah, you can see the breaking points here in the way the Soviet state was run, from, from these inner party struggles to basically Stalin on top as a lone, lone giant, to basically, hey, let us, let us try to fix this thing. Now, I'm not going to read you the whole text, because it's pretty long, but we have from, we, we, I have found a nice abridged version of this constitution, uh, translated by Rex A. Wade, uh, from the Documents of Soviet History, Volume 3, Lenin's Heirs. Now, I just want to read the declaration here. Because all this constitution basically establishes the Congress of Soviets, you know, to be the supreme kind of authority, with the Central Executive Committee, you know, holding this authority in between them. And, yeah, the Central Executive Committee is divided into the Soviet of the Union, which would represent the constituent republics, and the Soviet of Nationalities, which would represent the interested nationality groups. But everyone is given just a single nationality. They are all, they are all now Soviets. But the declaration itself is, well, pretty interesting. It's, a, it's not that long, it's about one page, so here we go. Quote, <clears throat> Since the foundation of the Soviet republics, the states of the world have been divided into two camps, the camp of capitalism and the camp of socialism. There, in the camp of capitalism, national hate and inequality, colonial slavery and chauvinism, natural oppression and massacres, brutalities and imperialistic wars. Here, in the camp of socialism, reciprocal confidence and peace, national liberty and equality, the, paci the, 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 the pacifistic coexistence and fraternal collaboration of peoples. The attempts made by the capitalistic world during the past ten years to decide the question of nationalities by bringing together the principle of the free development of peoples with a system of exploitation of man by man have been fruitless. In addition, the number of national conflicts becomes more and more confusing, even menacing the capitalist regime. The bourgeoisie has proven itself incapable of realizing a harmonious collaboration of the peoples. It is only in the camp of the Soviets, only under the conditions of the dictatorship of the proletariat, which has now become the dictatorship of Secretariat, that has ground root around itself the majority of the people, that it has been possible to establish the basis of a fraternal collaboration of the peoples. It has become possible to eliminate the oppression of nationalities, to create an atmosphere of mutual confidence. It is only thanks to these circumstances that the Soviet republics have succeeded in repulsing the imperialist attacks both internally and externally. It is only thanks to them that the Soviet republics have succeeded in satisfactory ending a civil war, in assuring their existence, and in dedicating themselves to pacific economic reconstruction. But the years of the war have not passed without leaving the tr their trace. The devastated fields, the closed factories, the forces of production destroyed and the economic resources exhausted, this heritage of war renders insufficient the isolated economic efforts of the several republics. National economic re-establishment is impossible as long as the republics remain separated. On the other hand, the instability of the international situation and the danger of new attacks make inevitable the creation of a united front of the Soviet republics in the presence of capitalist surroundings. Finally, the very structure of Soviet power, international by nature of class, pushes the masses of workers of the Soviet republics to unite in one socialist family. All these considerations insistently demand the union of the Soviet republics into one federated state, capable of guaranteeing external security, economic prosperity internally, and the free national development of peoples. The will of the peoples of the Soviet republics, recently assembled in Congress, 
where they decided unanimously to form the Union of Socialist Soviet Republics is a sure guarantee that this union is a free federation of peoples equal in rights, that the right to freely withdraw from the union is a sure teach for republic, that access to the union is open to all republics already existing as well as those that may be born in the future, that the new federal state will be the worthy crowning of the principles laid down as early as October 1917 of the pacific coexistence and fraternal collaboration of peoples, that it will serve as a bulwark against the capitalist world and mark a new decisive step towards the union of workers of all countries in one worldwide socialist Soviet republic. Now isn't this amazing? This is what, this is what the current Soviet state is in. The notions of world revolution are still hot, everything's going like crazy. There is some truth in the words of uh, academician Pavlov of 1918. He wrote that, quote, If the thing that, that Bolsheviks are doing with Russia is an experiment, that, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't commit frogs to such an experiment. My ethics would not allow me to. But this experiment has grown. It now encompasses more republics than ever. And they're being quite aggressive about what they want to achieve, what's going on, and what's going to really happen around. The Great October Revolution ends at this point. The new Soviet state, with the NEP and the new Soviet man, finally has begun. And Stalin is there. He's been there since the beginning. He's a member of the Triumvirate. And in the next episode, Lenin will finally die. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And do свидания, товарищи. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The eastern border salutes you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.